welcome to A Hunger for Wholeness. My name is Julian Langford, and I am the producer of this delightful podcast. In this episode, Ilya Delio and Gabby Sloan, our hosts, sit down with, I think, one of the coolest theologians that I have ever heard speak. His name is Thomas J. Ord. And he is a theologian, a philosopher, and a multidisciplinary scholar who directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. As you can probably tell from this short introduction, Dr. Tom Ord works in process theology and is constantly thinking about the relationship between science, evolution, and how God is open and changing. Now, I've already had the pleasure of listening to this interview, but when I tell you that you are in for a treat, I really mean it. Because in the first part of this two-part conversation, Dr. Ord and Ilya and Gabby talk about everything from what does it mean to have an open and relational theology and how God is understood as open and relational to how to talk about love in a culture where love is really all over the place and that word is overused and we think about what love is as friendship, as self-sacrifice, as romantic, as care for nature, as emotional. And then finally, we talk about what love looks like in this age of social media, um, what it means to share and show love over social media and why this matters in our understanding of God, culture, and world. This interview is incredibly special, and I promise no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what background you're coming from, you will leave thinking about the world a little bit differently. So this is part one of a two-part interview, so I ask you to sit back, relax, maybe even buckle up because it's just that good, and enjoy this interview with Ilya Delio, Gabby Sloan, and Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Well, Tom, it is really a delight to meet you first, finally, on Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) I, like Jillian, have really kept up with your work and love your work because it's very closely related to my own work. Yes. And I'm sure we're going to have a very rich discussion this afternoon on love and open and relational theology. Maybe for our hearers, you know, open and relational theology is a fantastic, I, I think it's such a breath of fresh air, quite honestly. And it's like uh, been with us forever, in a sense. And yet, it's really novel. It's new to a lot of people. And so, can you just say a little, a few words on why you're a prime promoter of open and relational theology? <laughs> I'd be happy to. And thanks again for the opportunity for this conversation. I think of open and relational theology as a broad umbrella under which rest a whole variety of people, movements, ideas, lots of diversity, but what they share in common are two big themes. One is the idea that God and creation are relational in the sense of interrelated, giving and receiving, not just uh, giving, but also being affected by others. And as you know, in the history of uh, Christian theology, there have been a number of significant theologians who said God is only outgoing 
but never receptive, never passable, never affected by creation. And the relational element of open relational thought says God is affected, passable, etc. The openness part is a way to talk about the future being open and not yet determined. God doesn't predestine things and not even foreknow exhaustively everything that's going to happen. So it's a way of talking about God and creation moving through time into an open future. Yeah. And, you know, those are kind of the big ideas under which there's lots of other ideas. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, really important. It's a God world wholeness, a unity. Right. God world of mutual effectivity, you know, that yes. God can be influenced by the world and the world is influenced by God. I mean, I love that. Idea. I think that's so consonant, quite honestly, with scripture. You know, I mean, yeah. I, when we ever got this idea, well, we know where we got it from. <laughs> 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 and we don't have to old rehash old dead big guys, but um, <laughs> it's an important. I think just the idea of a living God, a God mm. who's alive and the aliveness of God is relationality. Even the word God as that meaning of being the openness of being. You know, which is a beautiful way to talk about our existence. It's open. I mean, look at the, the mountains behind you and the beautiful waterfall behind me. Uh, and in front of Gabby is a fantastic view of Rhode Island's beautiful waters and stuff. So we're surrounded in the openness of life itself and why we box God into a little male figure hovering over <laughs> us is, is just really beyond, you know, logic, if, if you ask me. Yeah. When I talk to people about God being relational, people who've grown up in church settings in which they read the Bible, in which they pray and think that God is like affected by their prayers, they're like, well, of course God is relational. Duh. You know, who doesn't believe that? But if you know the history of not only Christian theology, but Muslim theology and some figures in Judaism, not everyone has believed God is relational in that way. Absolutely. That's right. It's an intuitive thing for many people. Yeah. Gabby, are you familiar with the idea of open and relational theology or this openness of God? I mean, I'm familiar with the terms because you just introduced them. And <laughs> the idea that we kind of talked about it a little bit last session, right? Yes. So an open and relational theology then fits quite nicely with the notion of love, you know, and that really has been the cornerstone, I think, of your theology, Tom. And I'd like to spend some time really probing that, especially in our culture where love has been so reduced and made into an emotional feeling. You know, we've lost the depth of love as our deepest metaphysical reality. Mm. So can you speak to what love means to you, why you see it as the core of open and relational theology? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I've appreciated your own work on this. It's something we share in common. Many people come to open relational theology from different questions they bring to the table. You know, some have questions about the relationship between God's power and creaturely freedom. Some people have questions about the metaphysics of time. Others are scientists who see the indeterminacy and the evolution in the world and think, well, how does God fit into this whole thing? And all of those are really important to me, but it's really been the questions of love that have been central. Because I think of love as something that strives to promote well-being, mm -hmm. flourishing, what's good, helpful, nurturant. And I think of love as inherently 
uncontrolling. It doesn't try to force, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, it doesn't try to single-handedly bring about consequences and outcomes. And because I think God's very nature is love, I think God is uncontrolling. And this then opened a relational framework that fits so nicely with the themes of love that are dear to my heart and to yours. It just all fits together hand in glove. Yeah, I love that. You know, for Teilhard de Chardin, love is really the core. He says love is the core energy of the universe. What's interesting is that he places love not only on a metaphysical level, but primarily on a physical level. And he's saying that there's this core energy of the universe in which, you know, from the smallest quark and lepton to up to the human, there is this force of attraction. There is this unity. And there is this creativity that, you know, things come together, new things form, and life moves on to something more than the individual entities themselves. So he says at one point, the physical structure of the universe is love. Is that something that you have come across yourself or or thought about? Yeah, I've picked it up in Teilhard some, although I've been more influenced by Whitehead probably here. Whitehead doesn't talk a lot about love, but he does occasionally. He doesn't talk nearly as much as Teilhard. But yeah, this notion that there's pulsating a kind of energy, a creativity, the elan vital, some kind of power at the heart of existence, including the heart of God. And at least in my view, on God's part of this, God's power is always aimed toward what's good, loving, helpful, etc. Now, I don't think creatures always love. I think we sometimes do evil. But in terms of the power that at play, even at the quantum level, that's related to God's input, I think it's always the power of love. Yeah. Gabby, where might you be on this question of love as a young person in a culture where love is all over the place? Yeah, we definitely try to box love in just like we do to God. You know, love is a romantic emotion you experience with a person of the opposite gender. and Love is so much more than that. And it is it is fundamental to the universe. That's, I think, why people do good things. Why we choose to be good people. Because it doesn't matter if it's in our minds, because it's in our matter. It's in our bodies. We're made up of stuff, just like the rest of the universe is. And the universe is in God. God is in the universe. So we're in God. And God's yeah. love. So we're in love. Hmm. I like that. I think being is kind of a state of just constant love. You know, if you're existing, you're in love in a way. I like that. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it, actually. I think, Tom, your insights are, you know, along those lines as well. Mm -hmm. The openness. And you speak about chloroform love or the plurality of love. You want to say a little bit more on that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I think, as Gabby mentioned, love has so many different meanings. And it can become really confusing. I've tried to say maybe there's a particular definition of love we can work with. And I have here, here's my proposal on the table. <laughs> I think that we could think about love as an action in relational response to God, others, creation, but some kind of relational response that seeks to promote what's good, what I call overall well-being. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of, that's how I see is kind of the core of love. 
But then that takes a myriad of expressions, a myriad of forms, pluriform. Mm -hmm. That can be friendship. It can be self-sacrifice. It can be love of nature. It can be romantic. I mean, you can be, I've got my grandchildren hanging out with me this week and I've showed a variety of forms toward Mm -hmm. them. Sometimes it's a a kind of emotional warmth that wells up within Mm -hmm. me that drives me to do good. But other times they're kind of a pain in the butt (laughs) and I have to respond in ways that promote their well-being in spite of like some frustration I have as a grandparent. So love takes many forms as I see it. That, that's interesting. We were talking a little bit yesterday with Catherine Keller about love and something, something similar in the fact that we always think of love in a positive way. In other words, almost to the point that, you know, love makes us feel good all the time. But the fact is love has, you know, aspects of demand and responsibility. It has these dimensions of suffering, you know, discipline is a form of love, mm-hmm. you know, when it's done with the with the right intention of bringing out the well-being of the one to whom, you know, the words are, may not come across so lovingly at times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I think, you know, one of the things is I worry sometimes about the culture, especially in a culture that is driven by Internet technology where social media becomes a predominant form of relationality, that we become superficial, you know, with regard to love, that if it doesn't look good, smell good, you know, taste good, it can't, you know, this is not for me type thing. Or, you know, my Facebook posting is not as attractive and so I'm unlovable. And so how do we develop a depth of love in our culture today, our very complex culture that is driven by technology. Yeah, it's difficult because technology, at least the apparatus of technology, are cold, hard pieces of plastic and metal, etc. Not the kind of warm emotional bodies that I get when I give my granddaughter a hug. So I think what we have to do is approach the use of technology with the questions of flourishing or well-being or helpfulness in mind. And so these then can become tools for us that uh, can help us help others in certain ways, but also can be challenges for us as we engage with others because we don't have all the same kind of social cues. Mm -hmm. To give you an example, uh, you know, I spend a significant amount of time on social media and I get people responding to my Facebook posts or Twitter in my tweets or whatever. And sometimes those responses come across as quite negative. (laughs) I think sometimes people want them to be negative. Other times, maybe not so much. And I'm just (laughs) reading into them. (laughs) So I have to then think to myself, okay, what's going to be the response that will be helpful overall, that will not come across as demeaning, degrading, that will promote well-being? And I've noticed that over time, as I try to be like that, on social media, it seems to have a positive ripple effect. Uh, Others seem also to see the wisdom and value of thinking about what's good and not reacting negatively to negative posts. Yeah. So I think it's more important, like love doesn't do well with just quick reactions, right? With, with, yes. Mm -hmm. Typically that's right. Gabby, I'm just curious, you know, because you're a young person who uses social media, what are some of your questions or insights on love and social media? I think that 
one of the important things on social media is it really depersonalizes the other person. You know, they're just another profile. You don't know them. But you have to remember that the person on the other side has, as you put it, you know, a warm body. They're a real person. Mm. And they have feelings and emotions. Like, how would you feel if somebody responded to your post with, you know, that sucks, man. That's that's stupid. <laughs> or like some people go further and write like a whole essay on why you're wrong. Believe <laughs> and, me, I've oh, seen those. So I, <laughs> yeah, I made a post about haha, how funny this guy is like not doing a great job at his job in the TV show. And somebody was like, this is the problem with spaces that talk about TV shows where people like this say things so callously and don't think. And I'm like, I made a joke. Yeah. About yeah. a random guy, a side character from a TV show, you know? And so people need to learn to, like, think about the other person not as, like, another profile, not as bits and bytes, not as the sum of their posts, but as another person on the end of another computer somewhere else who is thinking like you are. Yeah. Because we tend to focus on ourselves when we're on social media. And we have, all like, this breadth of room to do good. And instead, we're kind of like focusing inward on ourselves. And it's. Yeah, you, you raise an interesting point because I think love requires a, a disposition to the good. In other words, it takes a person who within they're at home with themselves. You know, so you, Gabby, you know, we're trying to make mm-hmm. a joke online and someone read that in, in a negative way, you know, and wrote some diatribe mm-hmm. against this, you know. So you're right, the depersonalization. But then I find a lot of people are kind of sitting on pins and needles today, you know, with a very fragile world and the difficulties of our world and the instability of our world. It's very hard to develop a depth of love as you might say a binding ethic or, you know, a common ground that we can, you know, begin to share in a, in a way that we express love in many different ways, as we said. But just having that inner disposition to be at home with oneself, to realize that even if I don't agree with your post or, you know, I didn't think it was that funny, you know, there's a way of saying that in a loving way, you know, like, well, you have a great sense of humor, you know, but maybe it's not my humor. But instead of we we tend to want to take people apart. And I find that anti-love, you know, if, if, if love is really a force in the universe that I think we have to speak about anti-love as well. And maybe anti-love is another way to talk about evil or suffering or the things that strip the world of goodness. Your thoughts on that, Tom? And then I'll ask Debbie. Yeah, I agree. I'm nodding my head in agreement. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's the way to think about it. And, and it, it's, it's complex because we live in a diverse world and people to, to go back to Gabby's illustration, people have different senses of humor <laughs> and some kind of humor plays well on social media and other cl- kinds of humor doesn't. And so in the kind of diverse world we have having that disposition, you mentioned Ilya, that uh, is sort of, I'm going to aim myself to try to give out the most charitable interpretation of what's going on here to not be defensive to be at home with myself to love myself and the other person that's a kind of way of being in the world that takes some work and you have to develop it as a habit and it's something i'm constantly working yeah no i I really agree Mm -hmm. gabby your thoughts here yeah absolutely personally the way i think of anti-love 
as you put it, is kind of a debt of love. Like somebody put it like it's a it's like a bank account and the money coming in is your self-love. And if you don't love yourself, then you can't make any more withdrawals to love other people. And if you're in love debt, you're going to be angry at people. You're going to want to because you're trying to push yourself up. You're trying to you know get your account in the green again or whatever. You can't love other people until you love yourself. And these people are not only trying to love other people without loving themselves. They're like, no, yeah, I can hang out tomorrow, whatever. They're, they're trying to be there for everybody. That really puts a strain on you when you're not, you're not right. loving yourself. You're, you're making withdrawals where there's no money. Yeah. No, you're going to debt. Yeah. It's a debt of love in some ways. But, you know, I do think love is the core. That If I had to say one thing that really distinguishes Christianity in a radical way, I do think it's love, quite honestly. I think there's a core ethic of love. I mean, when you take Jesus' commandment as the new commandment, to love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. That's the part, you know, sometimes we, we kind of skip over or, you know, as you're saying, without that, we're in a debt. We're in, you know, we're constantly, we're trying to do something outside ourselves that we don't even have within ourselves. And that becomes really just pushing rocks upward, which is impossible. And yet, I do think that love lives in a deep way, a way that's mutual, that is forgiving, that is forward-looking, you know, that love is never static. I mean, it never just says, ta-da, here we are, we're all in love, you know, like, <laughs> like the late 60s or 70s love fest, you know. <laughs> it's future-oriented, and that's really why I think love is so radical, that Two people who fall in love and, you know, form a life together, there's a future there. There's something new that, that takes place. And I think we have lost sight of the future of love, love as the future. Because I look at the world today and it's not a lovable place. It's a place of deep opposition, of conflict, of skepticism, of, you know, scarcity on many different levels. And therefore, when I see this, I say, we don't have much of a future. Without love, there's no future. Have you thought about this in your own way, Tom and, and Gabby? Or I'll begin with you, Tom, because you've written so much on this. Yeah, it's, it's the question of whether or not the future can be better than the present. And, you know, I, I think about it sometimes philosophically. There, there's some people philosophically who think that, you know, the world is always going to get worse we live in a fallen, depraved world and we're going to hell in a handbasket. And then there's other people who are like, you know, of course it's going to be better. Everything's getting better. There's, you know, it's inevitable that we're going to improve. And I could point to particular scholars in both those camps. <laughs> and I'm in the camp that says it's possible that the future could be better, that we can love in such a way that the world really can become a better place. But it's also possible that we choose not to love and things could get worse. And so our choice in the matter moment by moment really makes a difference on what the future will one day become. Right. No, I think that's an important point. In other words, the choice for love is not a self-satisfaction. It's the choice for the future. In other words, Mm. every moment that I decide. I'm making a decision not for my life in this moment, entirely as well, but moment for as this moment now opens up to the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's an extremely important point. 
uh, because I think, you know, and how do we, maybe I might ask you this, how do you think we can culturally, how would you see like three to five ways of deepening love in this culture that's very complex, religiously, ethnically, uh, socially pluralistic? How do we see love? How can we develop love as the common thread that binds us together? into a, a family, a community that shares a planet Earth. Yeah, well, three to five things. That's <laughs> Let me throw a few things out that I've been working on personally and see if these, you know, if Gabby finds them helpful mm-hmm. or not or other people. One of the things I'm trying to do is widen my awareness of folks with different backgrounds. I grew up in a little rural community in Washington State. And most people looked like me. Most people were not only Christians, but were Protestants. We had a small Catholic community. And so, you know, my diversity of thinking was pretty narrow. And therefore, I was really tempted to buy into some of the stereotyping that I received about, you know, well, of course, Muslims are this way, or of course, the Mormons are this way. And that's obviously bad. So part of my task has been to try to broaden my awareness of differences. And I find out that there's lots of positivity in lots of places. Another thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to spend more time in the natural world. I spend a lot, uh, go out and hike and I take photographs and uh, getting away in the natural world makes me think about my life differently and my place in the universe and it helps me to connect with values of aesthetics and natural beauty that I otherwise might not connect with. I, that's been helpful to me. So there's two. Maybe I'll, I'll pick one more. I have this love-hate relationship with community. <laughs> um, sometimes community can be the place that really inspires and motivates me to be a better person, make the world a better place, live a life of love. Other times, it's community that seems to drag me down and communities that hinder my living my life of love. So trying to navigate my life in the midst of multiple communities, because I feel like I need to play a role in in many different settings. And yet, so it's that navigation in various communities that is important to me as I try to live a life of love. Yeah, I I love your points, Tom. Yeah. I want to just, Gabby, do Mm -hmm. these points speak to you as well? Or would you see anything different? Absolutely. I really agree. Something somebody said to me once was, uh, if you can't love yourself, love nature first and then remember that you're part of it. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's a great one. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. There's a, a really important love scholar named Ed Vosick who has this line, uh, something when he comes, talks about self-love, Gabby, he says, uh, if we're supposed to love everyone God loves and God loves us, then we should love ourselves. <laughs> and I think there's something to yeah, that. <laughs> right. Would you add anything else, Gabby, on practices of love, like how to deepen love? Yeah, I, what I like to do is I like to just think about someone who I'm like mad at or whatever, like say you've got some friend who you're mad at and you don't really feel like talking to them and just remember like every nice thing that they've said, every good thing that you feel about them and why you like them and resist the urge to be like, I like them because they're not talking to me right now or whatever, (laughs) you know, and really just think about how you love a person and 
this doesn't have to be ignoring their negative traits and stuff. It could be like saying, I love her even though, and I want to help. Or, because loving someone isn't conditional, but it also isn't, I don't see your flaws, or I'm ignoring your flaws. Mm -hmm. It's... Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, You know, I've begun to think about love, uh, because, you know, look, wherever two or more are gathered, there's conflict, you know, (laughs) 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 right. You know I mean? That's kind of the the, the nature of being human. And yet we're living in this open and relational universe. In other words, we're living in an unfinished universe. Yeah. And I've begun to think about love in terms of the unfinishedness of our lives. For example, I knew someone, you know, who I thought was a good friend, quite honestly, and she disagreed with the way I did things and literally dropped me <laughs> like a hot Ooh. like a hot potato, you know, like Ooh. Yes, uh, li- literally just kind of goodbye, you know, not even a written note, just like yes. Wow. So it was kind of shocking and it's you know, it's hard to make sense of this, quite honestly. But I can only make sense in terms of there's still a dark side to being human, you know, because the, mm. what we are in our full potential is not fully realized. It's why we keep mm. getting up every morning and trying again, you know, why why love is ever new, why you have to mm. never give up on love, I think, because every day is a new day in love. All right, so don't fear, because as promised, that was just part one of this two-part interview with Tom Ord. So make sure to come back and listen to the next episode, which will have Ilya, Tom, and Gabby talking about sin, what it means for us to live as radically unfinished, how God is changed by human love, who Jesus is in open and relational theology, and how love is inherently free. As I mentioned earlier, there's something for everyone in this past interview and in this upcoming one. So make sure to tune back in. And if you really want to stay up to date with what's going on at Hunger for Wholeness, you can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram as Hunger for Wholeness. And you can also find our website linked in our show notes. If you want to get behind the scenes for a small monthly donation, you can become a member on Patreon and have the opportunity to ask questions, talk with Ilya and Gabby, and see what we have going on behind the scenes with future guests. My name is Jillian Langford, and I am the producer of this podcast. Kate Christensen is our marketing and social media manager who is always ready to swoop in and save the day. Robert Castro and Rebecca Mays have worked tirelessly behind the scenes to help coordinate these interviews. And Ilya Delio and Gabby Sloan were your hosts today. We'd like to thank our partners at the Fetzer Institute for helping to support this podcast. And we hope to see you here again for part two of this interview with Tom Ord. Thank you for listening to A Hunger for Wholeness. 